This episode is brought to you by our friends at PeopleBench. PeopleBench specialise in helping schools build their collective workforce and retain staff. We all know the future of work is fast, flexible and connected, and we know the crunch for talented teachers is on our doorstep. PeopleBench are here to help you manage and plan your workforce with an intuitive platform that can provide all the data you need to make an evidence-informed decision about your next staff workforce strategy. Head to peoplebench.com to learn more. Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education, and where we believe with better leaders, we'll make better schools. I'm your host, Luke Kelly, and joining me each week, well, not this week, is uh, my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving having a few technical difficulties logging in this morning. So we're going to get started just with me and we'll see if he joins later in the show. If you haven't already, you should sign up to the weekly email sent out by the team at Ed Leaders. You can sign up to that newsletter at edleaders.com.au. Now on to today's guest, Anthony McAuliffe, headmaster at Brisbane Grammar School, where he's worked his way up in various roles over the last 30 years, 30 years in one school. In addition to this, he is on the board of trustees for the International Boys' School Coalition. And in 2023, he saw his life's work recognised by being selected on the inaugural Ed Leaders Impact List. No doubt a career highlight for sure. So without further ado, let's get to it. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Now, we love to start the show with a bit of uh, a bit about your journey, your professional journey in education. As I mentioned, 30 years in one in one school, but I imagine there was, you know, something that uh, led to you being there and led to you staying there as well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting when you reflect. I, I always felt like I might in, end up in education. I had some fantastic teachers as a boy growing up in the southwest of Sydney and uh, one in particular, an English teacher who gave me the encouragement to pursue that, that dream, that passion. And so went to the University of Sydney and then actually went back and taught at my old school for a couple of years before relocating to Brisbane. Um, in Brisbane, I, I taught at a, a smallish Catholic school for about three years, but again, made some wonderful connections with people there. And I still call those people my friends. Uh, but came to Brisbane Grammar School, as you've highlighted, 30 years ago, 1993, and it's just been an incredible journey. Um, have the opportunity to do a number of roles when you stay in a school for this long, um, whether you call it rising up through the ranks or whether you call it um, working in each of those jobs and identifying what it is that gives you the greatest enjoyment. I think that's probably the way I would describe my journey at BGS. Do you think your leadership evolved throughout those roles? You know, what sort of skills did you pick up along that journey? And I guess there's that notion of now no one can say, oh, you haven't done this this role before. Well, actually, I've pretty much done every role yeah. in this school. Yeah. Well, it's probably true. I've, I've done done most roles. I've, I've been a head of department. I've been a head of um, year, a pastoral leadership. I've run sports. I was the deputy. I'm now the headmaster. Um, the one characteristic I've probably learned along the way is patience. Um, I, those, those people who know me will know that I'm quite a restless soul and I, I do chase um, outcomes pretty quickly, but I've learned to understand that there are plenty of people around me who are much better qualified than me to lead those activities. And in the current role, my job's 
more about governance and making certain that those tasks, initiatives, activities um, are coming to fruition in a reasonable time frame. Is there any point in that journey where you thought you would be there for this long or is there, you know, that kind of contrast between being a restless soul and being uh, in the one school for, for 30 years seems a, seems a slight contrast? Yeah, look, I, look, I think it's, as I said to you before we came on air, it was, it was more good fortune than good management. These roles came up at the right time for me and in actual fact in a couple of instances I wasn't looking but other members of staff, senior members of staff said, you know, you, you should have a go at this particular role because you exhibit either the organisational skills or the knowledge or the propensity to lead that might lend themselves well. You, you might actually fit into this role well. Do you think that's a common thread in, in schools, that kind of from senior leaders or executive leaders um, being able to kind of tap certain people on the shoulder you know, as jobs are coming up, you know, obviously discussions sometimes happen before jobs are advertised or before, you know, the wider staff know about things. Do you think that's a common thread in schools? It, it's certainly a historical theme here. Um, you know, I, I have a map of every member of the teaching profession and I, I know the people who could potentially rise to middle leadership or senior leadership roles and I would do everything I can, and I know my senior leadership colleagues are the same, to prepare those people for those journeys. Uh, there will be occasions when people will turn around and say, well, that's not for me, and I respect that. That's okay. Uh, but for the most part, there are certain skills or attributes that you see in people you think, you know, this person obviously understands their content area very well, they manage people well, they work well under, under you know, difficult circumstances or under pressure. Now, they're the sort of people that sit on your succession plan and you do what you can as a senior leader to make sure that they're prepared um, should the opportunity arise. I think the greatest challenge in independent schools of this nature is you try hard to keep everyone, particularly the good people, um, and you're not always successful. And it's, it's about making certain that those people are well prepared for promotional positions either within or in other schools um, so that they continue to give back to the profession that we all love. Two things I want to ask you about. The first I'm going to ask you about is that is what you just described as a map of your staff. I haven't heard that terminology before. Is there something that you could elaborate on in terms of your map of, of staff? Yeah, I've sat down and I've looked at um, I'm, I'm pretty much a visual learner, so I need to do this on a whiteboard first before I transfer it to some sort of electronic form. Um, but I've looked at all of the key roles throughout the school, whether they be middle leadership roles, director's roles, uh, executive roles, and then began to map um, where people might fit in the years to come. So I always look at um, senior leadership roles as being uh, responsible tourists. We have a responsibility to make certain that we leave the place better than we found it, uh, and part of that is making certain that there are people here who can do our roles when we move on. And you know, a, a couple of principles that we've talked to have talked about that notion that you've just described of of having staff that are well prepared or leaders that are well prepared for the next role, mm. um, and they kind of see that as a as a success metric for themselves, almost even sometimes. Do you kind of yeah. subscribe to that? Look, I, I don't see it as my su success metric. Um, I see it more about 
the legacy we leave as an executive team for this school. So if the our board of trustees chose to go internally, there are quite a few applicants who would um, be suitable for the role. If they chose to go elsewhere, they're also very well prepared for the challenges they might experience in a different context. Yeah. I guess um, just going back to that, the start of your journey throughout, um, you know, in the, in the early parts of your career, we, we often like to ask whether there were certain things that you had or skills or attributes that you had that you think made you stand out when you were, you know, an aspiring leader? It's a good question. Um, I, I, when I was run, younger, I always captained sporting teams. I'm not quite sure why, whether I was the loudest perhaps, but for whatever reason, I loved that challenge. I always really enjoyed trying to connect people from different backgrounds, um, create a common purpose and see how well you could do. And, um, you know, whether that were football teams or cricket teams or whatever it might be, that was something that really excited me was um, creating teams and making them successful. And so um, perhaps that was a quality that other people saw. Um, you know, obviously you can't be successful unless you're good at what you do. So there's a fair bit of uh, personal investment in uh, becoming an expert in the content area or becoming an expert in a particular profession or skill or whatever. You, you have to be seen to be competent at what you're doing. Um, but then also getting other people on board who may have completely different views and uniting those people under one banner I think that's the exciting part. And the super challenging part at times. Yeah, and look, it's not a perfect science. I don't think, you know, there are reams upon reams of, uh, you know, written material about leadership, but in the end it, it comes down to the individual cherry-picking what works for them and then building a team that is going to meet the needs of the school or the organisation or a particular cohort, whatever it might be. Are there, are there any, um, you know, I guess, attributes that are in your bag of tricks, so to speak, when it comes to kind of getting people together, connecting people that you would kind of uh, like to share? Yeah, I think you need all kinds. I, I, I love having um, people in the group who are going to challenge the uh, group think. Um, there's a real danger that we all nod and accept what's going on and everyone looks at the captain and says, okay, uh, what are we doing this time? Um, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm surrounded by a group of people who will challenge me and that, that helps me reshape my own thinking or it forces me to go away and do a bit more reading and a bit more research to make sure I'm posing the right questions or, or constructing the right framework. So I think that's absolutely critical. The other part of it is, and I wasn't good at this as a, as a younger person, but active listening and hearing what the other person has said seeking clarification, not just imposing my own bias. Uh, <laughs> it's taken me a bit longer to learn that part, but that's that's the bit that's really worked for me in probably the last decade. Yeah, I know that uh, Matt and I used to have a, a, a director of academics at Wesley who we would go to with any of our kind of crazy ideas because we knew that he was going sh to shoot them down uh, pretty quickly, uh, and yeah. then we'd have to go. We'd have to go back. Um, you know, think more deeply, kind of articulate the vision or the mission in a, in a better way, um, and then go back to to that person before we'd kind of. Yeah, go, oh. and I think look, part of that is 
The question that resonates most with me these days is there are always brilliant ideas um, within our staff, right? Um, creating an environment, one, where they feel safe to come forward and share those ideas. Two, having a process where if the idea is rejected for whatever reason, there has to be a plausible justification, right, and an explanation why it doesn't fit in now or may never fit in, right? And then thirdly, the most important criteria for me is what impact is this going to have on our students? Is it going to create um, greater, a more onerous workload for our staff? Um, and is it going to provide a return on investment for our parents. Now, I know people don't like that phrase, but in independent schools, parents are paying quite a bit of money to send their kids to these schools. And I think we, we need to be mindful of the fact that we are providing a service and there is that return on, um, on, on, on parents' investment. Well, I think in independent education, it's still it's still a business that has to kind of return value in one way or another to yeah. the stakeholders. Yeah. And, you know, we have a number of stakeholders in schools. So um, I think people inside independent education should be becoming more and more au fait and realise that that's the case. You know, I, I guess I, two questions about what you've just said there around creating that environment to feel safe when coming up with ideas um, what mm. sorts of things do you do to create that kind of culture of safety for for staff at your school? Oh, look, I, I, you've got to give people a platform where they can air their views. Um, you know, we've been very good at for eons of you know having the staff meeting and the town hall sort of scenario. But I, I found probably in the last decade, you know, trying to create time and space within the school day where people can gather and talk about what matters most to them. Um, so whether it's looking at ways to remove onerous administrivia, looking at ways of reshaping the timetable so it's more productive, looking at ways where you can have cross-disciplinary discussions, um, meeting with smaller groups so you can share what the school's strategic agendas are and how it impacts them, that, that's probably the, the key bit because everyone wants to know that the school's got these strategic priorities but they'd also want to know, well, what impact does that have on me? I'm teaching five sets of English. Um, I'm already working, you know, to the, to the upper level at the moment. Is that going to make my day harder? And so I, I always feel as if I'd much rather people raise issues so that we can seek uh, an amicable solution rather than leave it fester and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got a full-blown staff issue. I think one of the other things that's important to consider when it comes to ideas that are generated for either new experiences or new programs is how unique is the experience or program to the person that's coming up with the idea yeah. and that, you know, five, seven, you know, 10 years later when that person's gone, uh, you're not being left as a school organisation with a program that you can't find someone to to take the reins yeah. of. And, and all, all schools are going to go through a period of change, right? So you've got that period of innovation, but then I always talk about the next period is a period of evaluation and then a period of consolidation. So you're not going innovation on top of innovation on top of innovation because, as we all know, people get fatigued very quickly. Um, it's a bit like you know, I'm certainly not going to do another survey. Uh, we just get to the point where you're saturated and you really want to be left alone to do your job. 
if you're clear on what your job is and you're clear on the resources you have at your disposal, then staff morale is usually quite strong and quite good and um, student outcomes invariably improve. One other thing I'm interested in along your journey is the role of mentors um, and those people along along the way that have kind of been, you know, the guiding lights for you. Um, anything you can share about how, the importance of those people? Yeah, I, I've been fortunate in that space. I had um, – I go back to a primary school teacher who got me involved in, in sport and um, it was a rural setting. So I probably needed a bit of direction. And so I remember that person very well. And they, for whatever reason, invested in me and I felt compelled to give back to that person through the activity. Then in, I mentioned earlier I had a couple of great teachers in high school and my English teacher in particular um, gave me this love of literature, which then took me down that path. And then when I moved into my professional phase, I was very fortunate here at Brisbane Grammar School to have um, the past headmasters, um, a couple of my colleagues uh, along the way who sort of gave me some some sound advice. Um, but I, I sort of I go back to my dad. My dad was a very simple, still is a very simple sort of person, um, a migrant who came to this country with nothing. But he always said to me, he said, Anthony, just do the job you've got well and the others will look after themselves. Pretty sage advice. Now, I guess, um, you know, we, we do like to talk about, you know, leadership and your journey in leadership. Is there, um, is there something you can describe around your identity as a leader? You know, some people talk about whether they're a cultural leader, a strategic leader, business and kind of governance leader. How do you go about managing that yourself and do you lean into certain areas where you've got strengths or have you had to develop some of those strengths along the journey as, as a, you know, a senior executive leader and then a, then a principal? Yeah, I think that the, the style of leadership I love is being affiliative. I really do like um, collaborating and engaging with other people and, and getting a sense of you know, taking the pulse the atmosphere and then and then identifying where the opportunities lie. I mentioned earlier that I'm certainly a pace setter. I, I can set a cracking pace, but if I've got the right people around me who are prepared to slow me down, then you get an equilibrium, right? So it can be my high energy with their rational thinking, right? And so that, that tends to work well. In terms of how I might define myself as a leader, I, I think the area that I've invested the most time and effort in is in terms of understanding the business because BGS is a big business and people do not like to talk about schools as being a business. But the reality is I feel I have a much better grasp now, 10 years on, of risk, insurance, compliance, legal matters, uh, budgetary requirements, regulatory requirements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because I've invested in that space. So that was a gap in my knowledge. Uh, as the deputy, I had responsibility for some of those areas and I did that for 10 years. Uh, but as soon as you step into the head, the head role or the principal's role, you quickly realise that you've got to be asking the right questions. And I think uh, an example of that uh, these days in the IT space, you know, everyone's talking about you know, AI, et cetera. It's, it's not necessarily about becoming an expert in AI. It's about being able to ask the right questions and identify the right instruments or mechanisms or software 
that are going to improve your practice or improve your product or improve service delivery. So, you know, an area that's always fascinated me and, you know, we've got a major project that's coming to conclusion very soon um, has always been in infrastructure and master planning. So even as a classroom teacher, I'd often be imagining what it would be like to uh, restructure the campus um, because as you come through in different roles, you see the school in different ways. So as an English teacher, I was looking at my classroom and trying to identify creative ways to make this a much more pleasant environment because when I first came to the school, I taught in one of the heritage buildings. It was about 60 square metres and it was, wasn't was really a pleasant place because you couldn't find a location within the room where you could be uh, innovative or inventive. Uh, it was very much a chalk and talk style of teaching. Then I became a head of year and with, as the head of year role requires you to traverse the campus a bit more. And so you see it from a different lens. And then, and then as a deputy, again, you're actually looking at where the campus is safe where it could be potentially hazardous, where there's a line of sight or there isn't. Um, and so all of a sudden I began to foster these notions of um, how the campus might be re reconstructed. So, you know, some of my trustees might call me Bob the Builder because uh, I do like the master planning and I'm, I'm sort of now in a phase of my career where I really love the strategy. I really love thinking you know, what's on the horizon in the next five to 10 years and what do we need to do now in order to move into that space? There's a lot of questions I want to ask you off the back of that, but I'll go okay. back to start with, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, you talked about, I mean, we like talking about the business of, you know, K-12 education and it's part of what we we, yeah. we want to do. And you talked about that investment you made in that space for yourself over the last 10 years. Um, is there anything um, or, or advice you can give to, to the listeners around that investment that you made in that journey? Like what sorts of things did you do? Because as you say, coming out of a classroom or ahead of year, you're not necessarily exposed to, to many of those things. So were there, were, there, were there some specific things that you did along that journey and as part of that investment to upskill yourself in those areas? Yeah, I, I did. I, when, I, when I was appointed to the role, the first thing I did was um, – um, a course through the University of New South Wales for non-financial executives. So it was less about being able to construct a balance sheet uh, and more about being able to ask the right questions because I had we had a business manager at the time that I trusted implicitly, but I always felt like I needed to ask the right questions about why do we have that insurance? Why do we need to follow those uh, those compliance regimes? You know, what are the regulatory requirements for a grammar school? And in Queensland, you know, they're quite unique because the school was set up under an Act of Parliament, like all the grammar schools, and we're effectively the first state schools in Queensland back in the 1860s. But over time, we've become truly independent, but I still have reporting mechanisms that go to state parliament. And so they're tabled, all of our financials are tabled annually in Parliament. Um, so being, understand, being able to understand those processes as well. I did a course back in 2011 at, at um, Harvard, the graduate school, uh, which was about the art of leadership. And so it was an opportunity to pull my leadership style apart and work out what my default positions were and perhaps where some of my some of the gaps in my leadership were as well. 
And, you know, it was there that they identified in the methodology that they used that, you know, affiliation is paramount for me. Pace setting is something I love doing, but I can't always go at my own pace. I have to slow down and move with the organisation's pace or the board of trustees' pace or the staff's pace. So quickly learnt that they're the two ends of the spectrum for me. I did a course through IMD, which is the sort of international business school, and I did that in uh, in Switzerland, and I, I quickly learnt that you know, I've got to think outside of the school bubble and I've got to understand the market forces which are impacting schools and I've got to understand the economic um, volatility that exists around schools and around enrolments and around school fees and all of those sorts of things. So I suppose I, I took off the blinkers at that point and began to look more broadly and also decided I was going to take my executive team on that journey. So initially, as you would imagine, there's a bit of, you know, he's been off on a conference, he's come back and he's now going to impose all of his new learnings on us. But over the time, uh, together, we have got much better at looking at what are the market forces beyond the education sector which could have an impact on us in the future. You know, and, and COVID was a good example of that. We, we started a journey before COVID looking at how we might take our program, our curriculum online. And so we sort of did this black swan exercise as an executive team and we asked ourselves the question, you know, what if the lights were turned off and we had to present online? Um, we quickly learnt that we didn't have the IT infrastructure to match that aim, that goal, and so we started investing in our in our network, and then we began experimenting. We began sending the odd year group home in the afternoon, explaining to parents, you know, what the purpose was, and then lo and behold, COVID lands on our doorstep, and we're able to transition without a hitch. And so, there were a number of staff who felt adept at doing that. There were some who were obviously a little bit reluctant but got on board quickly. And then there were a handful of people who just needed help. They're good people, good teachers who just needed um, some assistance in order to get them over the line. And while it was difficult for all of us, we felt quite good at delivering that content online. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about there is really around the value of scenario planning and also yeah. the macroeconomic factors that are at play for independent schools, particularly um, you know, some of the higher and uh, higher fee paying schools. Um, and how, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously we experience this in WA when it comes to the macro factors to do with mining, um, you know, and so what happens more, you know, more broadly globally yeah. uh, with you know, coal supply and demand and, you know, what happens when, you know, um, Bernie May and Mary Mack or whatever it's called in the US go broke and, you yeah. know, what, what, are the, what are the factors that can trickle down and have, have uh, you know, significant impact, you know, to, to overall yeah. enrolments over a, a two or three-year period can be significant. Yeah, and I think, Luke, you know, relying on experienced heads from around the country who will willingly pick up the phone in order to share their experience. I, I find it's such a humbling experience when I bring up, you know, a, a very experienced head and say, look, I'm seeking some advice. They will give you the time and not only that, they will go out of their way to see how that process is going. And so I was very fortunate the previous head of the school 
of this school was part of a uh, an unofficial um, group of schools from across Australia, and that that group then accepted me as the new head into into that group, and and they have been a great source of not only inspiration but information um, during during this past decade. And I'm able to go to those experienced heads and say, look, I haven't encountered this situation before. How would you approach it? Have, have you seen anything like this before? And it, it often becomes then an online discussion topic where we learn from each other and, um, you know, we get the opportunity to smart borrow. Yeah, and that's the value of having, a, you know, a highly capable network, um, you know, that you can rely on um, and that you've grown over time um, to, um, to be valuable for yourself. Yeah, and look, the International Boys' School Coalition for me is the most extraordinary group. Um, listening to people, not just within our context, within the Australian context, but globally, and understanding that we're all facing the same issues, uh, but then looking at the different contexts, you can always glean something from those conversations which you can apply within your own schools. Something that you mentioned twice, and I, I know I particularly love this kind of notion, particularly in a strategic sense, and, you know, a skill that is super valuable is asking the right question, um, mm. you know, whether that's in a meeting setting, whether that's in a one-on-one -on -one setting, but knowing the right question to ask at the right time and having enough knowledge about, you know, lots of different areas often allows you that ability to ask the right question. Yeah. Is there anything you can elaborate on for you in, in developing that skill? Um, it, it's, it's interesting. I've always found I've been pretty good at opening, asking open questions. Right? And so the open question for me, often you get a response that you didn't anticipate. And so it leads then to clarifying questions. Can you explain that to me? Look, I have no knowledge of this. Um, can you give me some insight? Uh, could you explain to me how that might work in a different context? Uh, and, and I find that that also invites the other person into being the expert so they have a level of authority and all of a sudden the hierarchy goes away and they feel comfortable in sharing their views. I'll, I'll give you an example. Like we've got a, one of my directors at the school, director of um, learning analytics. She's got this incredible mind for you know, reading data. Now, I love reading the text, so I'll read the text first and then go back to the data set in order to identify the patterns. Um, he looks at the numbers and can tell me what the pattern is. So I've spent a lot of time with Nick working through the data to get a better understanding, a better grasp of how that data materialises in people's classrooms. How can it be used in a very simplistic way to influence either the pedagogy or the content Right? How could it be used to change our assessment items? Right? And so um, it's, it's giving me the confidence to ask more intricate questions, but at the same time giving the other person permission to be the expert. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the big challenges with data just on that topic is making it super easy to access, super usable and not yeah. overwhelming for staff. And that, yeah. that in itself can be quite complicated, I think. Yeah. I do also want to ask, because I am a bit of a, a Harvard fanboy, um, if you could uh, elaborate on your Harvard experience. Sure. Um, I, at first, I didn't quite know what I'd got myself into. There'd be a, a number of former colleagues who said, oh, you should do a course overseas. 
And it was actually the past head who encouraged me to pick a course. And um, I, I landed on the Harvard one because I saw the opportunity to do some case studies. Right? And I thought if I was lacking any any in any areas, it was being able to have a really good understanding of a complex issue. Like I had, as the deputy on a day-to-day basis, I had this operational understanding of everything. But I didn't necessarily always appreciate you know, the communication strategy in the background or the level of detail that was required in the planning or the complexity um, you know, around the boardroom dynamic or the politics that was required to get an issue, you know, on the table. So the, the course required a lot of pre-reading and it required you to look at a number of case studies in depth. And I'll never forget, the one that stuck out with me was um, a school somewhere in the US was closing down and um, this particular principal had only been in the role two years, had to inform the community. Right? And then it went through a number of different scenarios and then you looked at the outcome. And what resonated for me most was the level of detail that went in the communication strategy was extraordinary, right? And so I always, that, that sort of, that stuck with me from day one. But then when you get to do the course, you get to talk about the different scenarios and you get to hear it from other people's perspectives. So we all went with a base knowledge and then we got a chance to talk about what each of those case studies did. The other part of the course was about testing you as a leader and seeing where your strengths were, where your weaknesses were, and where the areas for improvement were. And as I said earlier, my strength was I'm affiliative. My weakness could be that I set the pace too hard on occasions and that I I need to monitor that. And the areas for improvement were around the business, understanding how a school operates and understanding the intricacies of that business model. I I mean, I couldn't agree with you more on the case studies, um, having done it done a few of them as part of my further study they're just such a valuable tool for kind of understanding you know really complex situations and I think in education I personally feel that we don't do a great job of learning by case studies um, and it's something that you know here at ed leaders would kind of like to explore doing more over, over the over the coming years um, with with the audience but you, you gave a nice segue there around, you know, complex issues. And um, I'm wondering whether, you know, whether you could share, you know, without names or without anything that's, you know, going to give anything away, you know, some complexity that you've experienced in, in your journey that, you know, perhaps the audience could, could learn from. Well, probably the one that I talk about the least and still pains me is having to deal with historical child sexual abuse. All right. So I was in week one of my tenure as a, as a headmaster and when I received the call from the Royal Commission uh, saying that we would be a case study, case study number 34, um, did, I, did I fully appreciate the magnitude of that call? No. Uh, did I understand the journey I was about to embark on? Absolutely not. Uh, Ten years down the track, it still remains unresolved um, for some of the survivors and certainly for the school. Uh, but I've learned a lot about listening to what people have to say to appreciating that the times were different, but we have a responsibility now to be forever vigilant and we have to have the right processes in place to protect vulnerable people. I think there was, um, 
you know, it's really hard when you are judging a place by current standards. So what happened in the past right, is now being judged by 2023 standards. And I found that really hard to reconcile. Yeah, and, and super unfair because, you know, the, the way we live now compared to 50, 60 years ago, um, you know, is super different. Um, and, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not sure fairness comes into it so, somehow. It, it becomes a case of uh, this is what happened, this is the response, is the response reasonable? Yeah. Now, you, you obviously talked about something that's super complex there. On the other side of the coin, there's obviously joyous moments, you know, in, in your yep. last 10 years as, as headmaster. Also like to kind of shine a light on on the good aspects of, of principalship. Is there anything you can share that, you know, brings you great joy about your role? Yeah, I, I actually love watching the kids and my colleagues succeed. I probably, you know, sounds a bit cliched, but you know, that's why we're in the role. And I can think of numerous, numerous colleagues who probably got off to a shaky start, but once they um, found their feet within this particular context, um, have really blossomed and, you know, there's one particular person I work with these days who has risen to senior ranks and just incredible journey and, you know, this process of self-reflection and professional growth. And I can think of numerous students who didn't start off so well but then I had the pleasure of shaking their hand when they graduated and I now see them, you know, when you stay in one place 30 years, they start bringing their children back as well. Um, and so I catch up with them and I meet with them now and they are doing extremely well. A good example of that, we had a business breakfast yesterday morning, which is run by our Old Boys Association. And one of the guys who was there was in my year group. So I was head of year 12 when he was graduating. So 21 years on and uh, he fronted up to the breakfast yesterday, you know, and he's highly successful. He's in that uh, AI space and talking about his experiences over the past two decades and then right at the end of the conversation dropped in the, the fact that his son's starting at the school next year. That must you know, be so really nice. That's that's the beauty of being in one place for so long. Exactly. You actually become entrenched in the community and you feel a real sense of ownership and you feel a real sense of protecting it as well. And I imagine that must make it even harder to, to ever consider moving on. Um, you know, yeah, from, but, from, from but being... it's... It's a good point. I think I would much rather go sooner rather than later because you want to leave, and I've always believed this, you always want to leave when things are going well. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) As a leader of a school, you are probably well aware that on average around 80% of the cost of running a school is the salaries and on costs of its workforce. Yet most schools do not have comprehensive visibility of their workforce data and metrics. That's where PeopleBench excels. Through their painted and workforce benchmarking strategy platform, they use data science, machine learning, and predictive analytics to provide insights and resources to support school leaders become self-sufficient in responding to the future of work in schools. The platform can benchmark your workforce data to other schools, build your workforce strategy and monitor progress on metrics like teacher resilience and workforce culture while keeping an eye on how those factors impact student outcomes. A PeopleBench subscription provides your school with access to school workforce research, benchmarking tools, dashboards, reports, 
their workforce resilience tracker, their workforce culture tracker, their workforce strategy builder, and their community of practice, including online networking and professional learning modules. So do yourself a favor if you haven't already, head back to episode 78, where we chatted to CEO and founder Fleur Johnston, and then head to peoplebench.com to learn more. I wanted to go back to your conversation, uh, your earlier conversation about being Bob the Builder, actually. You know, you kind of talked about how much, you know, uh, interest you have in, you know, strategic planning, but also infrastructure projects. And mm. it would be remiss of me not to talk about the, um, you know, the project that you mentioned, which is, um, you know, your brand new STEAM building. Um, let's let's have a conversation about that. You know, how... When did it start uh, the journey for this building, and and tell us about the process and um, and and what's about to be delivered? Um, it started in September two thousand and twelve. It was part of my pitch in my application for the headmaster's role. When it was announced in two thousand and thirteen that I was the head, uh, then I had a number of opportunities during that um, that year. The previous head was very good at saying to me you should take responsibility for, for some of the things which are going to be your strategy. And so I began workshops in September of 2013 with our staff. At that point, I knew what the two big projects were, which was we needed new science facilities, technology facilities, or we needed a new performing arts centre. Um, so getting the staff together to ascertain their views and, and understand what the needs were um, led us down the, the STEM route at that stage. Um, and then from 2014 through to about the end of 15, so two years, myself and one of the deputies uh, did a lot of research in, in the STEM area and we came across STEAM and, and STEAM for us resonated very strongly in this school because we have such a strong art program, not arts, just art as a single subject. And it was a beautiful mix between the creative, the, the scientific and the technological. And so, and it was also a bit of pragmatism in that as well, because our current art centre sits right in the middle of prime real estate, which we'd like to use for something else. So this synergy of what was philosophically and educationally right and what was pragmatic for the organisation. Um, and then from there, it was obviously convincing the board that this was something we needed to do. Uh, and then it became the conceptual phase. So a lot of research here, overseas, talking to other schools that had built STEM centres, et cetera. So that was about three years. The Once the board had signed off on, we, this is our project, uh, the, the, probably the most difficult phase was establishing your philanthropic strategy, right? Because it wasn't, we didn't necessarily have a great history of doing that. And so you asked me earlier about perhaps gaps in my knowledge. That was certainly one. Um, and I've never been great at asking for anything, but I've become much better at selling the vision and other people who wish to buy into the vision then make uh, substantial contributions. And people who can see that there is an educational value do want to contribute. But again, that's been, that's been developmental for me as well. So, you know, three years of concept, three years of planning and um, philanthropic strategy. Um, then you get into the interesting phase, which is the demolition and construction. People here would say, I love demolition. Right? And those who knew, knew me as a young person probably agree with that. Um, 
But then seeing seeing the building come out of the ground, begin to feel the excitement in this place, um, you know, watching the staff get ready to make the move and then finally getting into the building um, in January of next year will will be the end, probably about a decade um, to get to this point. Just to give you some understanding of the size, the Lilly Centre, which is a fantastic building on this campus, was built, uh, opened in 2010. That was 3,500 square metres. It was the biggest building in the school's history. Um, this building is 18,000 square metres, so it's like a, a reasonable-sized office block. Um, but what it has done, it has connected uh, a part of the campus that was very difficult to traverse. There were a series of buildings that were disconnected. Um, it was very difficult to supervise down in that area as well, and it means that the upper level of the campus is now connected to um, the western corner of the campus, and there's this beautiful synergy between existing buildings into a new construction, then on to the sports centre and down to the ovals. And so it'll make it'll make this campus much easier to traverse, but far more functional as well. It must be really rewarding to kind of see that come to fruition after this many years. Yes, yeah, so to to say I'm, uh, I'm I'm a tad impatient at the moment. Um, but I understand that uh, the construction industry has been very difficult, obviously, during the COVID period and that. And so very grateful to the firm that we're working with for the, uh, for the job they're doing. And I imagine that the, uh, the original QS estimates have uh, slightly changed over, over the years to uh, the end There's, construction. There cost. has been a slight escalation loop, but, but fortunately we've been able to manage that from a fiscal point of view. Now, you, you mentioned uh, getting board approval there. We do like to kind of ask occasionally about relationships with boards, and I know we're getting uh, close to the end of our time, but is there anything you can kind of, um, you know, describe about relationships with, you know, boards, your relationship with chairs of, of your trustees, I think, as, as you've called them, um, and the importance of, of that? Yeah. Um, I think the, the nature of boards has changed. Uh, the first board I worked with, fantastic group of people, who had um, an abiding, you know, uh, a real passion for the place and were prepared to go to the nth degree to make certain that projects and activities got, got done. Um, I, think, I think boards have changed. I think we're now seeing a corporatisation of boards in schools and therefore the metrics around performance and around output and around the deployment of resources is becoming more acute. Um, so they're, they're, it sort of behoves is that a good principles thing? and heads. Uh, look, it's 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 a tension. I, I would have to say that I've learnt quite a lot about how to manage that tension, and I've learnt quite a lot about the importance of the metrics. Um, you know, a lot of money is spent on education, and if you look at it from a federal point of view, you'd have to wonder whether there is a return on investment. So for a, a single entity like a school, being able to say this is what works and this is where we spent our money and this is why we feel very good about it is really important for boards. And it's forced me, I've done the, I'm doing the AICD course um, and I've been doing some of the online um, programs and that, but it's actually forcing me to think like one of my directors, like one of my trustees from that sort of governance perspective and appreciating that they have a fiduciary responsibility 
So when I bring something to them which is perhaps ambivalent or not clearly articulated or lacking in detail, I can now understand why they need to pull back the layers to get a better appreciation of what it is I'm trying to achieve. So these days when I take board papers to them or I sit down with my board chair, it's not anecdotal, it's not a feeling or a sense of an intuition, it's based upon cold hard facts and that gives them the confidence that what we're asking for is meaningful and will be impactful. And, and, you know, just to finish that off, I'm very, very lucky with both board chairs because, you know, my former board chair just had this will to do things well. Right? And it sort of fitted in very nicely with me because I, I had a, a similar inclination. My, my second board chair has a forensic view of things and being able to provide him with the detail has been a challenge for me because I like big ideas. I'm not necessarily great on the detail, but I've learned to be much better. And so I think that, you know, if I'd have to list mentors, both of those gentlemen fit into that category. Yeah, it's such a nice summary. And I was going to say there that it's really that shift from the the I reckon to I've got the data to support this and the, and yeah. the importance of those board papers having been well-structured, well-thought-out research that is really articulating um, meaningfully um, you know, what you're trying to convey. Yeah, and I think board papers, you know, ours have gone from being short novels mm-hmm. to more concise visual documents so you can see very quickly what's read and what's not. Yeah, and I think there's a real skill and art in doing that, um, reducing yeah. something from a from a five- or ten-page document to a one or two to convey the same yeah. amount of information when, you know, board board. Um, and directors are they're, they're busy they're busy people and you know sometimes they don't always get the, the opportunity to read all the board papers um, closing question for you before we get to uh, my favorite segment we love to throw open the crystal ball uh, to the future of where you think education might go over the next five to ten years any thoughts on on the crystal ball as to where education's heading um, where you'd like to see it heading perhaps yeah, I, I think um, particularly for our senior students, year 11 and 12, we're going to have to look at a different timetable. We're going to have to look at um, them having some time off campus online. I really think the school the school day and the structure of terms needs a serious look um, and review. Um, at the moment, squeezing everything in the 10 weeks is just mayhem and um, I see our staff, students and the parents exhausted by week 10 and there has to be a rethink about how we structure all of that. Um, I I think there'll be opportunities in the future for students to do a lot of, uh, to do micro-credentialing as well as uh, part of their entry into tertiary studies. So they they should be able to do some of that while they're in year 11 and 12. So if that means a reduction in the number of subjects that they have to do in order to get their tertiary entrance score. Um, that's that's a serious conversation to be had between the secondary and the tertiary sectors. Um, and then finally, I think staff wellbeing is a critical one, just being able to make certain that the people who are doing the best work in our classrooms, uh, the most work in our classrooms, we also look after them because they also go home and look after their own families. And I think the pressure is coming from both sides. Yeah, I think you're spot on 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 all of those topics. Uh, you know, love the love the micro credentials part. I think you're spot on with the school terms that 
that notion of which teacher or administrator or leader in a school isn't exhausted by week nine or ten, and yet we don't seem you know every term is the same. Uh, we don't we don't tend to think sometimes in a longer term vision around how we can you know shift and change those yeah. things. So well, it's it's a bit like the processor in our computers. You know, by the by week nine, most adults in schools have no processing power left. Yep, no, couldn't agree more. Well, that brings us to uh, my favourite segment, the uh, six and 60 seconds, one word or idea. Now, everyone breaks the rules, so I'll give you a score out of 10 as to how many rules that you break. One okay. educational narrative that's been underrated or overrated in the past decade. Uh, overrated, I would say, would be functional grammar, right, which was a, a theme of the early 2000s, nonsense. One underrated role in a school. Uh, director of operations. The most interesting PD you've ever done? You've mentioned a few today. Yeah, I'd say the Harvard one for me. If you could change one rule or one thing in education, what would it be? The length of the school day. One book worth reading? Thinking fast, thinking slow. And one person we should interview on the podcast? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I'm not sure whether you've interviewed Philip Goodsner at Melbourne Grammar School. No. Yeah. Well, I'll have to... Get in touch. I think that's a good a good recommendation. Well, that brings an end to our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed our chat with Anthony. I normally throw to Matt here for a closing comment, but I'll uh, I'll wrap up with my uh, favorite takeaways. I kind of love that notion that you commented on the environment to feel safe uh, for your people to come forward with their ideas and creating that culture of it's okay to to have things that are both going to be accepted and not accepted, and creating that safe space. For that, uh, I, I absolutely love that notion of asking the right questions and refining that ability to ask the right questions in any given situation and the, the value that that brings to an organisation and to, to individuals or meetings at any point in time. Really enjoyed your kind of your deep dive into the, the business of, of schools um, and the the journey that you've been on o- over your years uh, in developing, you know, certain aspects of your understanding of, of, of the business of schools, governance, risk, marketing, um, those types of things, mm. the macro factors that are at play when it comes to understanding your school in your context, in a, you know, in a wider sense. And, and just at the end there, of course, you know, that, that notion of the tension as, you know, that happens when dealing with your boards um, and yet the value uh, that comes from having those people involved with with your school organisation, while there is a tension yeah. to to kind of, I guess, professionalise and commercial, you know, make it a bit more like a commercial orientated board. There is still that tension of we are still a school. It is a it's a not for profit, <laughs> but we are there for a purpose. Um, but we still have to make meaningful decisions. Is important. So, thank you, Anthony, for giving up your time to be on the podcast today. If the audience out there wants to connect with you, where's the best place for them to do that? And have you got any closing comments that you'd like to, to leave with the audience? Look, anybody can contact me via BGS, um, Brisbane Grammar School. Um, happy to spend time with peers across the country or across the world discussing educational matters. And to you, Luke, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's great to chat. Um, hopefully some of what I said Uh, has relevance to others no absolutely i have no doubt it will and i'm sure the audience will get a lot of value 
from your your conversation and your wisdom today. So thank you. Remember, for the audience out there, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. Don't forget to share the love and tell a few of your colleagues, maybe the person responsible for your next PD day, that they should be listening to Ed Leaders, some of the best free PD on the internet for educational leaders. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. You can do that at edleaders.com.au for more details. Thanks again to today's sponsors. We'd be grateful if you could spend a few minutes going to their website and checking them out as they support us to make this professional learning free for you. You can connect with both Ed Leaders and Matt and I on LinkedIn, where you'll keep up to date with all the latest of what we're up to. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Go well.